I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome to IntroVets, veterinary mythbusters. The anesthesia and analgesia edition. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. Dr. Lydia Love is a board-certified specialist in anesthesia and analgesia. She is a VIN consultant for anesthesia, and she's also clinical assistant professor of anesthesiology at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Love. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier. You have obviously lots of anesthesia experience and credentials, but you wanted to make sure everybody knows that you also spent some time doing other things. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in general practice? Yes. After my internship, I lived in Memphis and I worked for the Humane Society of the United States um, doing free spay-neuter clinics in the southeastern U.S. So every other weekend, um, I would go somewhere from southeastern Ohio to southeastern Georgia with um, a few veterinarians who were volunteers, uh, a few technicians, and a whole bunch of students. And we do anywhere from about 60 to 100 cat and dog spays, vaccines, um, other sort of minor wellness things Mm -hmm. um, for free for uh, people in underserved areas. During that time, I also did some regular relief work and worked some ER um, shifts in in Memphis. Um, So that was the experience that really got me interested in anesthesia because, you know, the trick really isn't the surgery. Uh, The trick is managing 50 or 60 cats and dogs safely um, in a very quick uh, environment. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in the trenches with us. I've tried. I mean, it's hard out there for sure. (laughs) Well, we're super excited to have you today. So uh, what we're going to do today is go through some common myths surrounding anesthesia and analgesia. And we're going to limit our comments to small animal um, cases, Uh, but we're going to present a myth and then have Dr. Love walk us through how we can maybe think a little bit differently about these how we can take that myth, because usually there's some little kernels of truth maybe embedded. How can we take that myth and flip it around so that we feel more confident using these drugs, using these strategies and things like that? So that's going to be our goal. I love the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's see here. I think we're just going to go ahead and dive right into myth number one. Okay. Myth number one. Butorphanol is a good choice for pain control for all surgical patients. Well, I certainly have some opinions on this. Let's do I'd it. I'd be interested <laughs> first, um, either Dr. Greider or JJ, how often you find that, that this is the reality of the veterinary experience in your uh, neck of the woods? <sighs> Unfortunately, I think it is a little bit more common than I personally like. I've been a technician since 1996, so I can remember back in the days when there really butorphanol was the only thing that we had, and mm-hmm. um, pain medication just wasn't commonly used, and having to be the person who's recovering these patients, and they're, you know, painful, they're vocalizing and struggling, and I was just thinking there's got to be a better way, and 
you know, as time progressed, I worked at different places that would incorporate pain medication as things became a little bit more common. And I found that, you know, things like your, uh, your fentanyl and your morphine and your hydromorphone definitely made a huge difference. Um, but there still seems to be the kind of maybe older generation veterinarians, or maybe it's a situation where, um, it's just how we've always done it. So we're going to continue to do it. Or maybe they feel like there's, it's cheap. They just kind of stick with it. And I don't know. I was trying to figure out some way to help bring this up and advocate for the patients without ruffling feathers. That's always the, the hard, hardest thing to figure out when you're in a situation where you think you can probably do better. But how do you bring in that new idea without hurting people's feelings? Because we're all trying to do the best we can. Um, nobody's very few people are out there trying to hurt our patients, right? Mm -hmm. They just, they know butorphanol, they know what to expect, you know, they know how to get it, they know how much it costs. Now, I will say, as far as cost, um, butorphanol is not a cheap drug. Um, it is almost as expensive as buprenorphine on a per mil basis. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if you're looking for the most bang for your buck, you are going to want to reach for some of those full mu agonists like morphine or hydromorphone because they're, they're pretty pretty inexpensive. Now, fentanyl, a little bit more expensive. It's nice because it has a short half-life and you can adjust it pretty quickly if something is happening that you aren't really excited about in the moment or you want to, you know, make it a higher plasma level or, or whatever, but it's a bit more expensive. So, butorphanol is a mixed agonist antagonist. It is a kappa agonist and a mu antagonist. So, this means that it um, actually antagonizes the mu receptor, which provides supraspinal analgesia um, and all of the potentially not so great side effects that sometimes people get nervous about. So there are some uses for butorphanol we can mm -hmm. talk about in a little bit, including yeah. partially reversing some of those full mu agonists if you need to. But if you're really looking for um, the ability to provide um, uh, a real high level of analgesia in a variety of species, Full mu agonists, combined with other um, options, including NSAIDs and local anesthetics, are going to be what you want to reach for. If butorphanol is all you've got, I think there are ways you can use it. Sometimes you're not going to be able to control an animal's pain with just butorphanol alone, but sometimes you can in combination with other analgesics. So dexmedetomidine has some good analgesic effects, especially in combination with butorphanol. Ketamine and lidocaine infusions could be used. Um, a regional anesthetic. So let's say you're doing castrations. An intratesticular block with bupivacaine, a dose of carprofen, and um, pre-med with butorphanol and dexmedetomidine. I think that's pretty good. I don't know that you have to have morphine in that situation. Mm -hmm. But if you're routinely doing abdominal procedures, routinely seeing dogs and cats with um, trauma, then it might be worth your while to think about a full mu agonist. Yeah. Um, going back to, to the question that you ask of how commonly you run into to this myth, I would say it's very common in the in the places that I've worked. Um, and I know clinicians still who whose opinions I I highly respect who still hold on to butorphanol with both hands, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and when I've asked, you know what why is it that um why is it that we're making the choice for butorphanol in this patient who is having i mean you know 
even a spade. I mean, abdominal surgery is painful. Um, but, but then I also see it in things that are going to make you maybe a little bit more nervous, like orthopedic procedures, uh, amputations, um, you know, major, major things. Um, and I get a variety of responses, but sometimes I'm very surprised by like, I'll, I'll go into a place and everything I'm like, yeah, like these people are super progressive. And then we get to the anesthesia part and I'm like, push the brake, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, okay, let's have a conversation about it. So I would say it's more common than, especially when I started doing relief work and traveling, um, it's way more common than I would have ever thought. Yeah, you know, I did relief work where uh, at one practice, and this is an exact quote, the entire analgesic strategy was, well, we might have some torb around here somewhere. So, so I know that that reality exists. Um, yeah. And I do think there's some fear sometimes with thinking about moving to a full mu agonist, both on a um, diversion level and also just on a, well, this is a stronger drug. I, you know, I don't know what to expect with it. Um, I think controlled drugs are controlled drugs and people will abuse anything. So you probably need to treat them all about the same. Um, and so, um, you know, lock up your butorphanol and your um, morphine and your ketamine all the same. And then as far as what to expect with them, full mu agonists are actually very cardiovascularly friendly, um, such that they have minimal cardiovascular effects. They can cause a little bit of a slowing in heart rate, some mild vasodilation, morphine, maybe a little bit more if you dose it IV really quickly. But generally, they're the foundation for um, cardiovascularly friendly drug protocols. Um, I, you know, I do think that making a change is scary. Um, But moving slowly and, uh, you know, trying it in um, healthy patients uh, where you kind of haven't made a whole bunch of other changes is a good way to start. I think maybe another common reason that some people have been against some of the the pure mu is, is the nausea that goes along with it. They don't like to see the animals vomiting before, but using serenia seems to really help combat that. Uh, I 100% agree, actually, with both of those things. So I think our charge as anesthetists is to provide a good experience for the animal. Yes, I want it to survive and walk out the door. That's number one. But I also don't want it to be super fearful. I don't want it to be painful. I don't want it to be super anxious. I don't want it to be nauseous. Um, I want that animal, if it could fill out a survey about its experience like we do, <laughs> yeah. to be like, this was great. I, I am glad I had my forelimb amputated there. That, that was okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we should control their nausea. And um, we really, you know, we see obvious vomiting with things like hydromorphone and morphine. Um, but I think there's probably some other GI effects with just inhalants and things like that, lidocaine infusions that we don't, we aren't always able to see that maybe, you know, affects their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they don't overtly vomit, but they feel nauseous and we can't pick up on it or we don't pick, on, pick up on it. So I'm a big fan of some sort of anti-emetic with any procedure, whether that's meropitant or um, ondansetron, which is less expensive um, yeah. and an option, although Serenia is super popular everywhere. And so I'm on board with that. Uh, another question we've come across, I know Dr. G and I have heard conflicting CE uh, education about this is if you give a dose of butorphanol as a pre-med and say later during recovery, you want to give a pure mu drug, 
Is that okay? So, okay, yes, absolutely. It's okay. You're not going to you're not going to cause a problem. What happens at the receptor level can be a little unpredictable. So, we can say things like, well, Butorphanol is going to antagonize the mu receptor and kind of keep hydromorphone from having an effect. Partially, it's going to depend on species. Partially, it's going to depend on when the two drugs were administered, whether they were administered IV, sub-Q, blah, blah, blah. Probably some pharmacogenetic stuff, too, where, like, depends on what type of, um, you know, uh, DNA pattern sequence there is in that particular individual's mu receptor. Uh, but the reality is that I don't actually care what you decide to do. I just want you to then look at your patient and see if what you think should have happened is happening. So if you started with buprenorphine and then you give buprenorphine afterwards, for example, for a spay or hydromorphone or whatever, and you think this is going to be a good high level of analgesia, pain score your patient. Look at them and see if that's happening. And if it isn't, do something else. It probably depends on how, what plasma concentration you have of full mu agonist, whether butorphanol is going to be additive or a reversal. And again, it depends a lot on timing. Um, but again, just look at your patient, pain score them. You wanted them to be comfortable. If they're comfortable, great. And if they aren't, do something else. Awesome. Dr. Love, um, for those listening to our podcast that aren't familiar with pain scoring, can you just briefly give a summary of how that's done? So I can. Um, and there are some really great resources out there as well. Okay. The bottom line is that you need to look at your patient and try to uh, see if you can see how their behavior um, and uh, even facial expression has potentially changed from, from baseline. So Dr. Kristen Messenger um, is my colleague, and she has um, some good resources on the feline grimace scale. This is a yeah. new um, validated pain score that does not require you touching the cat, which is helpful mm -hmm. um, because cats sometimes don't appreciate that just when they're not in pain anyway. It takes a little bit of practice, and there can be a little disagreement amongst observers. However, there is very good agreement. Like, so maybe somebody says this cat's a six, and someone else says it's an eight. Written almost never does someone say it's a two, and someone else says it's an eight. They're close enough that it's a good break for needs more analgesia or doesn't. So if you can use the feline grimace score, that's the one I recommend for cats. For dogs, it's a little more complicated. The Glasgow Composite Measures Pain Score is mostly validated. I mean, it's pretty validated, um, and it's fairly easy to use. There's some, when I say fairly validated, there's some controversy over what that exactly means, but that is totally available to uh, print off the internet. One that is not validated, but that is used commonly is the Colorado State University Acute Pain Scale. That's nice because it's got pictures of, oh. of what a cat who's uncomfortable looks like, hunched up and, you know, his ears are droopy and his eyes are squinty and pictures of a dog who is, is uncomfortable. And it's a very accessible scale. So if you're moving into a situation or if you're in a situation where pain scores have never been used before, um, I find that's a very accessible one to start with because there's pictures and colors and people can understand it, even if it hasn't been validated. Awesome. Mainly interact with your patient. Yeah, yeah. the Colorado State one's the one I'm most familiar with. Yeah, and I've, I've used it, again, like, not validated, whatever. I just want people looking at their patients and saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy with how this patient looks, or 
I need to do more. And response to analgesia is an important part of all of that evaluation. So if you're unsure, give them some more analgesics and then reassess. You can always reverse things if, if you're, you know, if something terrible happens, which it rarely does. So Dr. Love, we know this is one of your pet peeves. Do you feel that a single dose of buprenorphine is going to be good pain coverage for an entire day when you're having a surgical patient? I think the answer is most of the time, no. That buprenorphine is a, it's a pretty darn good analgesic in most situations for cats most of the time. Not really severe pain for all cats, but a lot of them, it can be pretty good. Um, for dogs, moderate pain, buprenorphine's pretty good. But for nobody, is one dose of buprenorphine and forget it, going to be enough for an abdominal procedure or something to that effect. So it really kind of fits into the last thing, uh, the last myth where like, at some point, just look at your patient. If you think buprenorphine is going to keep them comfortable for four or six hours, uh, look at them at that point. Have a plan for what you're going to do. What are you going to do um, when they go home that night? Have you used the holy trinity of acute pain management, opioids, local anesthetics, and NSAIDs? What else can you do? Because buprenorphine by itself, you know, there are situations where that's the best you can do and that's what you're working with. But I think we can try to do better. When you're assessing the patient, sometimes I see that trying to decide between if they're painful or euphoric can be a little difficult. Do you have any pointers on that? For me, with a dog, I'm probably going to try to touch them and see how they respond. If they're kind of unfocused, they don't look at the place that I'm palpating when I touch the wound. If they're, you know, vocalizing and weird, to me, that's more of a dysphoria type of situation. Cats can be a little more difficult, again, because they don't always like to be touched. And I think even with dogs, um, but certainly with cats, if you're unsure, you have a couple of options. One is to treat them uh, for pain if, you, if they've had a painful procedure or event and see if that behavior changes. Are they now better or are they worse? Whoops, wrong way. Or you could consider something like dexmedetomidine which is both sedative and analgesic. And so sometimes that's a good choice, especially if they've had a major procedure and you just need them to, to relax and be pain-free or as close to pain-free as possible. Yeah. I love that drug. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. A lot. You do? Oh, yeah. Did you, okay. Oh, Quick sidebar, so because I can't even tell you the number of places that I go where people are like, we don't use, and we're going to get to this myth later a little bit about the, the whole, like, there is bad drug and good drug, but I use dexmedetomidine all of the time. And then when I go to places, they're like, that's a bad drug. We don't like how patients do with it, you know. So I, I just I just want to say that it made me have, like, a, a feeling of, like, instant relief to hear an <laughs> anesthesiologist be like, yeah, you can use dexmedetomidine. That's that's a reasonable thing to use. I would have to say then you probably haven't talked to a lot of anesthesiologists because I don't think any I of don't us know would be any. like, don't do it. I mean, yeah. I think alpha-2s are an amazing class of drugs. I think sometimes the way we use them can make for a scary cardiovascular situation. But there are ways you can use them even in very sick uh, patients. And as a side note, dexmedetomidine is also known as Presidex which is, it's a little bit on back order right now because it is a human ICU drug that they use to keep critically ill patients asleep and ventilated. So mm. there are ways huh. we can use it, even in critically ill patients. You just don't give them 10 mics per kg IM and come back in five minutes and see if they're ready for you to intubate. <laughs> I ding, think ding, that's ding. the preach 
from the G there. (laughs) So I was excited about that. Okay. (laughs) Myth number two is keeping a patient under anesthesia for X amount of time is unsafe. So um, I don't have an X to fill in there. There is potentially more risk as time goes on. What the human literature um, seems to sort of settle out at is probably around six hours. Things sort of tend to potentially gain a little bit more risk. And six hours is for me when I'm kind of saying, you know what, everybody's tired here. There's no way the surgeon's doing a good job. There's no way the anesthetist is doing a good job. There's probably been like three handoffs so people can eat and go to the bathroom. Information gets lost at handoffs. So I start to get itchy around six hours. But the length of time you can keep an animal asleep safely really just depends on the monitoring and supportive care. So it is a, I think, in veterinary medicine, valid method of managing anesthesia risk to choose healthy patients and work as quick as possible, right? So that's what happens a lot of times in a spay-neuter environment. You you don't do the sick ones and you get it done in five minutes. Um, That is a way of managing the upset homeostasis that we cause with, with anesthesia. The other way to manage it is to actually manage it externally. Keep them warm because their brainstem isn't doing it for them. Keep their blood pressure normal because their brainstem isn't doing it for them and their heart contractility is down and they're vasodilated. Uh, If it's long enough, maybe you need to uh, evacuate their bladder. Um, You need to keep them ventilated. You need to keep them oxygenated. So yeah, sure. If you do a a not great job managing the patient, then a two-hour anesthetic event is not a great idea. But if you can provide good monitoring supportive care, I think you can keep them, I know you can keep them going for, you can keep an animal asleep for 24 hours. So, and I know that the answer might be, it depends on the setup you have, the staffing you have and things like that. But in general, do you consider it more safe to do one long procedure or more safe to do multiple small procedures? Uh, And the specific thing I run into this with is dentistry, where we're like full mouth extractions. And Certainly, dental specialists can usually do full mouth extractions really quickly, but there are not many dental specialists. So there are large geographic areas where there's just not one. And so if we're doing that in private practice, it's we're slower. So would doing staged procedures or one huge one be better, worse, same? Yeah, I think it I think you hit the nail on the head. It depends on how what your staffing and monitoring capabilities are. So also how that animal's doing. Right. So if you anesthetize that 16 year old cat and you can't get his blood pressure under control, I might just clean up the, you know, the big obvious things and get the heck out of there. Um, But if you can maintain their blood pressure and oxygen levels and CO2 and keep them warm and you it's going to take you three or four hours, that's okay. Um, And in fact, if you then wake them up and do it again, you kind of expose them to all that risk again with, well, what if somebody does something wrong with the machine? What if I accidentally endobronchially intubate them or esophageally intubate them or, you know, all of these complicating factors that can, you know, cause a problem with anesthesia. So I would generally vote for one well-managed event rather than multiple um, smaller events. Okay. Interesting. But again, I get itsy, antsy after about six hours where I'm like, eh, yeah. maybe maybe we should come back and do this another day. The myth number three, pets over a certain age are too old for anesthesia. You can anesthetize a 99-year-old human being to replace their hip. There are some unknown cognitive 
decline risks associated with that that are probably um, also real in geriatric um, veterinary patients as well. Um, and so I will potentially have that conversation with the owner because, you know, cognitive dysfunction is real and we don't know a lot about it. Um, and we don't know a lot about the effects of anesthesia on cognitive function in that age or even in neonates, you know. But as far as just uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, yes, there is some decline in cardiorespiratory fitness as patients get older. Uh, it is very important that you assess the patient in front of you and assess what kind of cardiorespiratory reserve they have. Figure out what kind of monitoring supportive care you can provide them. And, you know, what your plan is if your six-year-old cat that you want to take all the teeth out of its mouth is hypotensive. What are you going to do? Um, you know, what's the next step? How are you going to manage that? So elderly patients can undergo anesthesia, again, with the right monitoring and supportive care. This kind of brings me to my real soapbox in, in, the, okay. in the world of, Let's of do anesthesia, it. which right is that, you know, it's not the drugs that are the problem. It's the monitoring and supportive care. So all of the same drugs, except for acepromazine and telazole, are used perianesthetically in human beings. The death rate, published death rates in healthy humans, so ASA 1 and 2, is something like 1 in 200,000. So about 34 people a year in the U.S. die. Healthy people die kind of unexpectedly from anesthesia. The published death rates from a large prospective study that's about 15 years old out of the U.K. and a recent retrospective Banfield study, um, which has a huge database, around 1 in 2,000 for healthy cats and dogs. So, mm. uh, about that. So that's a lot uh, there's worse. a hundredfold difference in published anesthetic death rates in healthy small animal patients versus human patients. And it's not the drugs. <laughs> it is training, monitoring, and supportive care. I think I know a lot about anesthesia. It would take me years to get to a point where I could anesthetize a human being just because of the regulatory, you know, training requirements. Whereas, honestly, I could have my daughter ventilating a dog tomorrow while I spay it. And it wouldn't yeah. really be that problematic, you know? So um, I think that um, all of it comes down to all of it being anesthesia safety, whether it's for an elderly patient or a six-hour procedure or whatever. It comes down to good staff, good technical staff who is empowered, trained, and is paying attention. Yeah, I fully support all of those statements, <laughs> Dr. Love, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like I... I mean, I think all of those things are really important, and um, I hope that we can, like as JJ said earlier, things are so different now in your basic veterinary practice from when she started. I hope we can continue to all keep marching that way, and the next thing that I would love to see is a general push for trained people to anesthetize animals. And while, because it's impossible as the surgeon, you can't also monitor anesthesia. You just can't uh, because then it's like, you got to stop what you're doing with the pedicle in your hand and say, okay, have you checked the jaw tone? Have you looked at the eye position? What is the temperature? You know, and if you have someone that's pretty much just writing things down on a clipboard for you, that's not helpful in any way. And it increases the anesthetic time. As the surgeon, it makes my stress go through up into the brown level, which is above red, right? <laughs> so um, I feel like there's better ways for us to, to do this. I don't know how 
to make it happen, though. Well, so, I mean, it is a, a, an economic and ethical issue, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the bottom line. I mean, I'm comparing dogs and cats to humans, and I mean, they aren't, you know, like my 13-year-old daughter needs a, a you know, fracture repair. It's just not the same as if my cat does. Um, and so there are some barriers to providing that care that are real and, um, you know, valid. But I do yeah. think there's some, you know, pretty uh, easy things we can do. And lots of times it does start by just, um, you know, uh, identifying someone to monitor anesthesia. Sometimes that's a good first step. You are going to pay attention to this animal. Um you know, in some situations, again, maybe you have to just pick healthy animals and work quickly. But my um, my feeling is that the profit centers have shifted uh, since, you know, since I was in practice from spay, neuter and pharmacy to dentistry a lot of times in small animal. So you've got these, you know, 14-year-old chihuahuas with a sewer mouth and a murmur <laughs> and um, you want to keep them asleep for two hours safely. And so in those situations, you in order to make it better for everyone, for you, for the client, for the patient. Um, we have to step up our game on, um, you know, staff training, education, monitoring, and supportive care. And, and it means an investment in, in equipment sometimes. So anybody out there who is um, struggling with, you know, seeing what they perceive to be an inadequate monitoring situation, the other thing that I would ask you to do is to speak up about it. And that doesn't have to be in an abrasive way. It can, you know, just be assertive, which uh, like we talked about with the therapist that we interviewed a, a couple of weeks ago, that just means that you're calm and direct. And if your concerns are ignored, they're ignored, but at least you've brought it up. At least you've said, hey, I see unsafe situations happening. Can we go ahead and talk about what strategies we can you know, change, what What can we change? What can we use to help make this safer? If we don't start speaking up when we see something that we don't like happening, like basically we can't constantly be afraid to step on toes. That's hard though. I mean, you know, most veterinarians and veterinary staff are women. And so that's yeah. difficult for us. You know, you don't want to be uh, cast as a um, unkind word. <laughs> um, and so, I, but I think, you know, having a small goal even, like having somebody assigned to monitor the patients. And then, you know, you can get pretty far with a pulse oximeter and a Doppler. Um, you know, yeah. that Doppler might not be very accurate, but it can give you some good information and feedback. Um, uh, audio, audible as well, which is, which is really nice. So, um, you know, little steps, baby steps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Baby Absolutely. steps get someplace eventually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. What are some strategies that people in private practice can take if they have a client that has excessive anesthetic fears related to age? Well, I mean, I think, you know, that is going to mainly come down to the development of a relationship with that owner, right? So if you've got somebody who's not trusting you, um, who is suspicious of your intent and capabilities to begin with, that's just a recipe for disaster, right? Um, so I think, you know, trying to figure out if it is a client with whom you can build some rapport or have rapport with already is probably pretty important there. When I talk to owners, which isn't a ton anymore, when I um, worked in uh, private referral practice in New Jersey, mm -hmm. I didn't speak to owners uh, uh, fairly frequently because people were nervous. Yeah. Um, at, at the vet school, uh, currently I don't. But when I did talk to owners, 
Um, what I would try to do was to, you know, I couldn't, I didn't explain um, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, fancy doctor things to them. Basically, I tried to get them to understand that I was a reasonable person. I cared about their animal. There's some risk with anesthesia and I can't make that zero. But I'm going to do yeah. everything in my power to make this as good as possible. Um, you know, these are the things If they have, sometimes they have, you know, specific things off the internet. I don't want my cat to get ketamine or do you, you know, do you use a heart monitor? And I'm going to answer all those questions. Um, and if they don't want me to use some drug, as long as they're not asking me to just gas their cat down and go from there, um, I'm going to generally accommodate them. Um, mainly for me in that situation, it's about saying, can this owner and I have a reasonable relationship where they trust me to do the thing that I know I can do well. Yeah, I think, G, you had a kind of a example of how you had a, a unique relationship with a client where you talked them through some of those concerns. Yeah, um, and I don't think she would mind me sharing this, so I'll give more details than I normally would. Is someone that I continue to have a close relationship with. So when I first started seeing this particular client, she had a 15-year-old a small mixed-breed dog who had the need for full-mouth experience extractions almost. I mean, many things needed to happen. Uh, but the patient was pretty healthy. You know, no cardiovascular disease, no history of chronic illness. All of the things that we typically do, like lab work, urinalysis, uh, you know, auscultation of the heart, all of those things were, were normal. The owner had an extreme fear of anesthesia because of a friend of hers that whose pet had died under anesthesia. So like, you know, that one event then influenced, I'm sure, everyone in that that owner's circle. And so I started off by mentioning this is what we need to do. And the owner was not ready to have that conversation, but I didn't just drop it forever. Every time I would see her, I would revisit it. And as we built that relationship, then finally the pet started to have major clinical signs of oral pain, dropping food into the bowl, pawing at the face, some bleeding, now it's become a dental emergency. And so I got on the phone and started calling people and was able to locate a veterinary dentist who had a relationship with an anesthesiology resident. And so we were actually able to arrange for the anesthesiology resident to drive down <laughs> to meet with the dental specialist all on the same day, have the dog transferred up there. And they were able to do the procedure and everybody was happy. The dog went back to being playful eating and lived for three more years and died <laughs> of something completely unrelated to anesthesia. And um, everybody was really happy. Now, that's not an everyday case or scenario because in this particular case, we didn't have any significant financial limitations or travel limitations, which I know we commonly see. Uh, but I did want to just share that example of building the relationship, not making it an adversarial one when the client says no the first time. Sometimes we just have to say, I understand your concerns and then continue to advocate for the patient. It can help. And what can happen is exactly what happened that, you know, she put it off long enough that there almost was no choice, right? You know, yeah. you'll get that um, yeah. dog who's actually been, that little Pomeranian who's actually been in heart failure who now has a tooth root abscess. And you can't leave yeah. that. And now things are actually a little more difficult for your anesthetist. Yeah. So I, I do think that establishing that rapport with the owner is probably the most important thing now. That's a great point. Okay, so our fourth anesthesia myth is once the patient is extubated, the procedure is over and there's no longer any risk. Pets who have been extubated are now safe and can be left unmonitored. 
certainly nobody believes that. Uh, you would be surprised. <laughs> so, um, statistically, about 50% of deaths related to anesthesia in dogs and cats happen in the first three hours post-op, for what that's worth. So, okay. my um, sort of discharge uh, goals for a patient are that they are aware, warm, ambulatory, pain-free, and, you know, basically calm-oriented you know, not weird or anything like that. So they got to be maintaining their own physiology and they don't do that right away. Like the brainstem doesn't just bounce right back after, um, you know, they cough the tube out. That cardiorespiratory physiology can still be, and their thermoregulatory ability can still be affected for some time, especially older patients, right? It just takes longer or very young. Um, so that first three hours in particular, I'm pretty alert to what's happening to them. And, you know, there are environments where that can't always be, but I think that you have to recognize the risks you are taking. If you decide to take those risks, that's okay, but there is some risk there. Gosh, your answer was very eloquent and hit on literally every follow-up question that I had about that, (laughs) which it was going to be, you know, which portion of the procedure is most dangerous and (laughs) when are patients out of the woods? You know, they all, they're not out of the woods when you exit them. That's really the bottom line. I mean, I think that is very, very pertinent. And, uh, you know, maybe that's especially true with like brachycephalics. I mean, hopefully everybody's aware of that, that you really need to continue to watch them. It's possibly also especially true when you haven't gotten any objective feedback on physiology. So like in a spay-neuter environment, maybe you need to keep all those animals on the beach, right? On the recovery beach and keep a real close eye on them for as long as possible before you just put them back in the cage and stop looking at them. So myth number five, sedation is safer than general anesthesia. So um, the thing about sedation and anesthesia is that it's really a continuum. And so you kind of go from fully awake to fully dead. And you don't necessarily know where you're going to be on that continuum. I might give some dexumatorum butorphanol IV aiming to get a non-responsive patient who's still ventilating well and maintaining their airway so I can get radiographs of them or whatever. But it's possible that they don't keep ventilating as well as I wanted them to or their upper airway relaxes and they don't maintain their airway as well as as I expected them to. And so because you aren't usually planning to instrument sedation patients, I think sometimes it actually becomes a little bit more risky because maybe we're not paying as much attention and they can Mm -hmm. just slip over that line from, you know, heavily sedated to actually anesthetized and not doing that good a job taking care of themselves. So, uh, you know, in some situations, uh, you know, I think it's fine, obviously, to heavily sedate, not intubate. Um, Maybe you don't have an IV catheter, but I think you still need to be watching them closely and be ready to intervene if something happens that you weren't expecting. Patients where I think it is probably not true that sedation is safer are the brachycephalics. So Mm. I think you can get away with it sometimes, but I get real itchy about heavily sedating an English bulldog. I would rather have control of its airway and be able to supply O2 and be able to have IV access really quickly if I needed it um, than just kind of keeping my fingers crossed and hoping things go okay with a dog like that. Mm, Girl, same, (laughs) same. Oh, man. Or, oh, pugs. Oh, oh, Oh. pugs. Why do they exist? Sometimes it's okay, but you just got to be really on your toes. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just easier to have control of the situation. And really, the line between sedation and anesthesia has to 
do with how well the animal's taking care of its own physiology. Um, I can send you a um, graph that the American Society of Anesthesiologists, so the ASA, um, has. Yeah. It's really nice that kind of show, it's called the continuum of sedation from, and they don't say yeah. fully awake to fully dead, obviously, but that's really what's yeah. happening. So sure. um, here's how the patient is CNS, cardiovascularly, respiratorily, you know, with light sedation, heavy sedation, light anesthesia, deep, deep anesthesia. So it's all like kind of fades into one another. That would be awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. So myth number six is it's not important to examine each patient before anesthesia on the day of the procedure. Well, I I think that some state veterinary medical boards would probably disagree with that statement. Um, <laughs> there are probably others that don't have uh, clarity on that. I can't back this up with literature, but my bias would be that you should at least do an abbreviated cardiorespiratory exam of your patient on the day of. I don't probably care if they have a liver mass that you haven't picked up on before. That's probably not going to affect my anesthetic event. Um, so if you don't palpate its abdomen, it's probably okay, but I want you to listen to its heart and lungs and just take a good look at it. Does it look hydrated? Does it look thrifty? Does it look, you know, is he or she pretty alert and bouncy or does he look pretty dumpy? Um, I think that that stuff is important. Um, I don't have any veterinary literature to support that other than that that is going to dictate your ASA status and ASA status is intimately linked with anesthesia risk. I have shared that clinical observation. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'll say I've been out of school now, vet school, over a decade. I think when you first go, when you go into your first jobs, you kind of adopt whatever the status quo is of the place you're working because you're really scared to rock the boat. You know, that's what I did. And, you know, 10 years ago, I can say pretty confidently it was not the norm to <laughs> Yeah, at least in the practices that I visited and stuff like that, um, to perform an examination before anesthesia. It was kind of just like, you know, get the next one down, you know, that kind of thing. But luckily, I had the experience of having actually an office manager who was very progressive in one of my positions and who said, you know, hey, like, we really need to start doing this. And so I'll admit, I actually at the time was a little bit like, oh. How am I going to fit one more thing? You know, we are so crazy busy every day. Like every day I'm coming in, we have all these procedures. I've got all these rooms. We've got all these drop-offs. I already don't have enough time to get to all my work, you know, but I did it anyway. And it was not long before I was like, holy crap, how, what, how, how have I been operating without this? This is insanity, you know, because there were so many times when I would look at the animal and be like, um this animal looks terrible. Like what? Um, it's all emaciated and weird looking and like what's going on. And I look back and I'm like, it's lost three pounds, three pounds in the past month, you know, and I get on the phone with the owner and they're like, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't mention it at drop off, but like they haven't been eating for like, I don't know, three weeks, you know, and, and the conversation then shifts from like, well, I think we're probably going to postpone the super elective procedure. That's not an emergency and maybe go to like, a full workup of why your animal has lost three pounds in a month. <laughs> um, I was just super surprised by how often that happened and how often owners, it was not even on their radar to mention, oh yeah, the animal has been super sick, uh, but we, pro we probably feel like it was fine to just, I don't know, do whatever. But anyway. I'd advocate for technicians doing uh, physical exams, a technician anesthetist yeah. on their patients as well. Very focused, listen to their heart, listen to their lungs, 
feel their pulses, look at their gum color. And if you feel not confident about that, the more you do it, the better you'll, you'll understand what, what you're listening to and, and what's wrong and what's right and what um, yeah. might change during anesthesia. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer them to do it like when the pet is being dropped off or just before anesthesia or it, it doesn't matter as long as it's done? It doesn't matter as long as it's done. So if, it's, if it works for flow when, as they're coming in the door before they get their pre-meds and whatever and, you know, go like maybe they're getting trazodone as they walk in the door, whatever it is you're doing. You know, that can work or before you give injectable pre-meds a few hours later. Either way, I just think that empowering and professionalizing technicians in that way makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that kind of goes back to having trained, educated technicians on your staff is important. Can you imagine if your nurse anesthetist didn't do an exam on you? You're Mm -hmm. saying um, when a person goes in for surgery? Mm -hmm. Like, do you think Mm -hmm. that's going to happen? Like, the nurse anesthetist is going to examine you. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's going to listen to your heart. They're Mm going to check your blood pressure. They're going to do all of those things. Right. Well, and then people can talk, too, and be like, also, I haven't eaten for three weeks. You know, (laughs) like I I have been losing an astronomical amount of weight and haven't had an appetite. Do you think I should still have my breast augmentate? You know, like something (laughs) super elective. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, in in people, they actually have pre-anesthetic clinics in some facilities. So, um, oh, yeah. You know, because so many of us are walking around with chronic managed um, health issues. And so yeah. maybe even a few days before you go see the anesthetist, whether it's the anesthesiologist or the nurse anesthetist and and have all those sort of comorbidities assessed. And then, of course, you still get a physical exam on the on the day of. Myth number seven, the safety of anesthesia is determined by selecting the right combination of drugs. So, I mean, I think I've, I kind of espoused this view earlier um, on my soapbox. Um, I get a lot of questions that are um, sort of oriented in like um, the animal has a murmur and it's mitral valve disease and it's stage B2. And can I use butorphanol, propofol and sevoflurane? Or the dog has liver disease and um, his bilirubin is 1.8. And can I use uh, morphine, ketamine, valium, and sevoflurane? Most of the time, I don't care what drugs you use as long as you have a good preventive analgesic strategy. And a preventive analgesic strategy is one that is preemptive, multimodal, actually effective, and carried on for a long enough duration. Once you have that under control, 95% of the time, the drugs really don't matter. It's more about how you use them. So a balanced anesthetic technique titrated to effect is going to be your friend the vast majority of the time. Drugs that you are familiar with, their side effects and dosing and any potential complications that might occur from them, those are going to be the thing you want to look for. Your best anesthetic events are going to be ones where you look at your patient you decide what your whole anesthetic management plan is going to be, as opposed to, if I just get the right induction agent, this dog with liver disease is going to be okay. It's more about monitoring supportive care and management. There are some times when I care about the drugs, you know, and more about how you use them. So maybe that cat with HCM, maybe not the best candidate for, a, you know, a high-dose IM ketamine protocol. Maybe I would choose propofol in that situation. Um, But could I use a little bit of ketamine? Probably. We had written a bullet point about another related myth. And I think we did kind of cover this a little bit. But 
that certain drugs are, quote, more safe than other drugs. Um, and I think you hit on the example just then that I had put, but are there any other specific examples that you can think of that people tend to associate with like a risky drug that is actually not? Yeah, well, we were talking about dexmedetomidine earlier, and mm -hmm. um, it certainly can have some profound cardiovascular side effects. But again, it's used in critically ill people just very differently. So they might do a half microgram per kilogram over a half hour and then a quarter microgram per kilogram per hour. So instead of five mics per kg IM, they're using it at a slower infusion rate. So it's not that the drug itself is bad. It ends up being yeah. how we tend to use it. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, ketamine is another one that has a, um, it got a bad rap when propofol came along. But ketamine is actually a sympathetic stimulant. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines because it is um, going to maintain cardiac output, blood pressure, potentially upper airway tone, and ventilation. And it's useful in under-resourced areas. Um, so battlefield situations or, um, you know, uh, under-resourced um, uh, countries, uh, third world type countries where there aren't as many healthcare um, resources available. So, um, you know, some of these, these drugs are actually fine if used uh, in an appropriate manner. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there are lots of reasonable options for anesthetic protocols, but utilizing them correctly with an understanding of what each drug does, how they interact how they affect the patient and then monitoring the patient is really the the biggie. I mean, you, you could do my job now. That is, <laughs> that is what I walk around saying all day. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, that sounds like a great plan. I actually don't care. You have a great preventative analgesic strategy, do the rest of it, but tell me how you're going to deal with this patient. If he stops breathing, tell me what you're going to do to keep him warm. Tell me how you're going to manage his blood pressure. Those are the things I care about mainly. Yeah, I was just telling G earlier how, you know, we were talking about patients that have certain underlying diseases and our comfort level of whether or not we would go into doing anesthesia. And I was like, for me as a technician, if I have a doctor who has the patients with me and is willing to kind of go over a plan, it's like, okay, and have plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because, you know, the first plan is usually not going to work. But also, um, what are some things that we can expect and what would you want me to do in that scenario? Here's what I think. Give me your feedback as to whether you want me to do more or less or different so that if these things happen, I already have a clear pathway of, you know, I just update her. Okay, this is happening. I'm going to do this like we discussed. And Unfortunately, I do seem to find that not all doctors have that sort of patience level with their technicians. And I wish that was different because hmm. I like to feel safe. <laughs> and uh, that's just a way to keep my anxiety down. And I would like for technicians to kind of advocate for doing that sort of thing. I mean, absolutely. It makes you a, a part of the professional team. And to say that they're not going to have that discussion with you makes you just a, a number writer. And so I, you know, that, that's how I interact with our technicians and students all day long. We sit down and discuss the uh, presenting complaint, the, you know, the signalment, um, history, any relevant stuff. And then we focus on what are our anesthesia concerns? What, what are we, what might become problematic and how are we going to manage it or, or hopefully prevent it? Um, and that is the majority of the discussion. And then we kind of back into a drug management plan, you know, like whatever protocol you want. Um, but to 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 not want to have that discussion with a technician 
tells me that there's maybe, for whatever reason, a lack of professional respect there. Yeah, or maybe even a fear that the vet, maybe the vet doesn't know, you know, like a fear of kind of being, quote, found out that they're not exactly sure how, you know, but if you feel that way, you can always just say, let me put some thought into that. And can we have our meeting, you know, maybe tomorrow and let me let me brainstorm some things and then I'll be ready to have this conversation. One hundred percent. You do not have to know it all. Uh, You know, the most liberating thing is to say, you know, that's a good question. I, I need to look that up. I don't know. I can get back mm-hmm. to you on that. I mean, you do not have to know it all. <laughs> it is um, anxiety inducing to think that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was just, <laughs> I was sitting here thinking like, I wish I could go have the conversation that you were just talking about because, well, when I came through veterinary school, we didn't have an anesthesiologist. I want to ask you where that was. Are you willing to call it out? Yeah, I I went to Auburn. And at that time, there wasn't an anesthesiologist. So we didn't have a formal anesthesiology rotation, at least for small animal. We had a large animal anesthesia. But um, even it was mostly, I felt like I was mostly in a supportive role. You know, when I came through, the surgeons all managed their anesthesia individually. And they would kind of say like, you know, build a, here, decide what you want to use for this patient. And we're going to let you do it you know, as long as you're not making some egregious error, you know, that sort of thing. But the thing that you were just saying that I feel like I kind of missed out on was a detailed discussion about it. Like, okay, let's have a meeting about our plan for this patient. What are we concerned about? How are we going to manage it? And I didn't really gain a significant understanding of how to respond to anesthetic. I won't even call them emergencies because by the time it's an anesthetic emergency, it's almost too late, right? When we're seeing now the blood pressure is taking a nosedive, you know, we're seeing changes that make you feel nervous. What are the steps that you do to combat that? I feel like, and maybe it was just my own experience, but I felt very insecure and and didn't feel fully prepared there. And most of that experience came after I had graduated. So I almost wish there was a course, and maybe there is, like, can veterinarians come, like, to a vet school or meet with an anesthesiologist and, like, spend a week on rotation like is that a thing that's done or are there similar programs out there i don't know if i've seen that i've definitely seen people studying for like ecfbg um Mm -hmm. do those types of rotations i think probably that that like if you called your local vet school whatever's local to you now and said can i do this um the it would mainly depend on whether they like i don't know how how much they'd let you do versus just shadowing based on hospital privileges. But I bet they'd let you sure. come there because um, they mm-hmm. also let people who are doing like alternative dental residencies will come and do anesthesia rotations with us. So, um, yeah. I, you know, people like teaching in those environments. I, you know, I think that what you just said, not really learning anything about anesthesia until afterward, after vet school <laughs> is probably true about almost everything. Like, okay. you, do you know what I mean? Like, you, you just, so yeah. you, there's a reason that there's another three years of apprenticeship in human medicine and economically it's not viable for us, but yeah. um, you're expected to do so much and with so little experience, it's just so overwhelming right out of vet school. It is. You're right. I hadn't thought about it that way exactly. But when I look back, 
basic things. Well, what I consider to be basic things like passing a urinary catheter on a blocked cat. Yeah. <laughs> I never did that. Right. It was just like, well, now we got to figure it out right now. Because mm-hmm. I, now I, I, I got a block cat. People could find good mentors <laughs> right out of vet school. I mean, that's really yeah. the key, I think. Yeah. And I will say that um, my mentorship experience was above average when I first graduated. Awesome. You know, no, no general practitioner, no mentor is perfect, but I would say mine is above average compared to some of my classmates who maybe got none at all. Like they were pretty much like, here are the keys. Yeah. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to be on vacation for two months because I've not had any help for the past 20 years. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally. That was super scary. <laughs> Um, can veterinarians hire boarded anesthesiologists to work in general practice? So there are a couple of folks who um, do that kind of um, concierge anesthesia. Um, yeah, like a they, traveling. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a few people. Um, uh, Victoria Lukasik is located in the Southwest. She'll, she'll kind of fly around the Southwest. Um, Diana Hollaby is in South Carolina currently. Um, I believe that Dan Baruta is doing that in Florida, although I'm not hundred percent sure of that. And then cool. Nancy Brock will teleconsult during an anesthetic event, um, via what? FaceTime. And she can also, um, potentially link into your multi-parameter monitor with, um, her computer. So she is a good option out there in the world. She's also a VIN consultant. Um, and so there are some things like that that are starting to happen. That is awesome. That is the first time I've ever heard of that. That is super awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, man. I'm going to be on the phone with the telemedicine anesthesia. Like, hey, when can we set up a time? <laughs> you know, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, Dr. Love, thank you so much for meeting with us and for being willing to record at nighttime for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, we really appreciate it, and I know people are going to get a lot out of this episode. I hope so. I, ha- I hope I hope it was fun for you. I hope it was fun for me. Yeah, it was super fun. If you have submissions for us, that might be veterinary cases, funny stories, crazy client interactions. Please let us know. We'd love to hear them. And you can send those to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.